Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Teg Nataro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Are the world's most interesting foods going extinct? I'm Benji Jones, and I write for Vox about the environment, conservation, and biodiversity. And today, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. I've got some bad news if you have trouble waking up in the morning. Coffee as we know it is in danger. The entire multi-billion dollar industry is built on just two species of coffee plants. One of them doesn't taste very good. And the other, the one you likely drink, is under attack from climate change and deadly fungal disease. That's the bad news. The good news is that there is another kind of coffee out there. It's called Stenophylla. Stenophylla is more resilient in the face of climate change and disease, and it also tastes great. So theoretically, it could take the place of the coffee we currently consume. But there's a catch. And it's something that will come up over and over again in today's conversation. Stenophylla is super rare in the wild. In fact, for a long time, scientists thought it was extinct. Failing to save this rare plant puts the future of coffee culture at risk. But the thing is, it's not just varieties of coffee that are both rare and important to us. Ancient kinds of wheat, corn, citrus, chocolate, and even wine are threatened with extinction, according to a new book by BBC journalist Dan Saladino. And as he argues, that makes our global food system far less resilient, to say nothing of the toll it could take on rich flavors. In his book, Eating to Extinction, Saladino visits farmers and food makers around the world to tell stories about our ancient and intricate relationship with food. That's one reason why I'm so excited to chat with him today. Another is that I simply love food and selfishly want some reassurance that our diets aren't doomed. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. First of all, I I really enjoyed the book and I'm excited to get into it. And I just wanted to start out by saying that I loved getting to travel all around the world with you in this book through your eyes and experience all these different foods. And I guess my first question is, is it fair to say that you love food? What got you into this? Well, I have spent, well, 25 years working for the BBC and my first love is radio. And that's what I do. And I love telling stories through radio. But I also have a childhood in which my father has always worked in food. So he's he spent all of his life working in restaurants. And also his, <laughs> his birthplace is the island of Sicily in the Mediterranean. And so my childhood was spent either sitting in the back of a restaurant, watching waiters and, and chefs at work, or traveling in the summer to this small town in the southwest of Sicily called Ribera, where I would live with my nonna for six weeks, eight weeks during the summer, and spend time watching her cook, uh, Mm. watching her work on the farm, and also going to Sicily, not really understanding that much Italian or Sicilian dialect. Huge amounts of shouting and disagreements around the table, and it turns out that it was all about food. So, (laughs) <laughs> a deep family interest in food, then journalism, and then an invitation to join a program that was launched in 1979. It's more than 40 years old. And it talks about nothing other than food and farming in terms of economics, politics, and science. And we're going to get into to some of the stories that you tell in the book. But when you sit down at a restaurant today, I mean, I would imagine 
first of all, you must be an amazing dinner guest, but also you probably think about things that other people are not thinking about. I I think that is the case because I've spent so much of my time now, 15 years on this program, and then 10 years collecting stories for the book, three years of writing. And yeah, I, I loved the research. I loved traveling for the book. And it has given me insights that changed my view of not just food, but the world. But I do sit down now and I could look at a plate of pasta or a loaf of bread or some rice and think extremely differently now Mm. (laughs) about the story behind that food. And so in terms of all of your travels before writing the book, all your journalism in the food world, was there one particular experience with food that really made you realize that we needed a book about the future of some of these kind of rare foods? Mm. I'm sorry to go straight back to Sicily, but that actually is almost the origin story of the book. So the very first program I made for this radio program about food on the BBC, very lucky to travel to Sicily because I'd suggested it was a time of year when farmers were harvesting oranges and lemons. And I traveled to a place very close to the Etna volcano where the blood oranges grow. And I was visiting some small-scale family farms and expecting to arrive and be told this wonderful, glorious, celebratory tale of harvest and history, a thousand years of history of citrus. And many of them were telling me it was the last year that they were going to be harvesting their oranges. And the reason being that there was this cheaper citrus that was coming from other parts of the world that was being imported into Italy, and they just could not compete. And The day I met some of these farmers who were giving it up and abandoning their citrus groves, I went to a meal that was being staged to give celebration to this citrus fruit and sat next to me at the table was a guy who'd traveled down from the north of Italy, a tiny small town called Bra, and he represented slow food. And he told me that these oranges were going to be placed in something called the Ark of Taste. And I didn't know what the Ark of Taste was. It turns out it's this catalogue that this movement had created to capture the stories of endangered foods. Now there are more than 5,000 of these endangered foods in the catalogue from 130 countries. So after that meal, and right up to today, I am just trying to learn more about these thousands of stories in this catalogue, and each one represented, as I say in the book, history, culture, economics, politics, science, anthropology, all of these things captured in these tiny stories of foods Mm. that were disappearing. I'm so excited to get into that. I have to know, what did it taste like? What did the orange taste like? Is it different than what we might experience in a grocery store? It is. And it was also the diversity within this group of blood oranges. So the story there is that the specific climatic conditions around the volcano means it's very hot during the day, extremely cold, relatively speaking, for Sicily at night. It causes a reaction in the plant and it produces anthocyanins that give it these either blood red flecks on the skin and in the flesh of the orange, or in some of the varieties, almost crimson, deep colors that completely (laughs) dominate this fruit. So what I was experiencing was visually, it was so striking and so different to what I was seeing as oranges in the UK but also the taste, the flavors as well. So the sweets and the sours and the combinations of both were wonderful and each one tasted different. Yeah, my my mouth was watering while reading this book and I I was so envious. So one of the main points that you make in this book is that a lot of foods are varieties of foods, whether it's types of coffee or chocolate or wheat are going extinct or nearly extinct. And what's interesting about that is that when I go into my grocery store, I'm in New York, it seems like the aisles are completely stocked with all kinds of things, not only abundance of food, but also variety, right? Like I just tried cotton candy grapes, which are amazing, by the way. And if anything, it seems like there's more food versus less food. So I'd love to just hear like, what is actually going on here? Mm, yeah, and I think absolutely right. And it, it's a really important question to ask because so many of us are living through a time in which it's obvious that there is a huge amount of diversity and we can have, we do have many more options than our parents or or our grandparents. The key thing that I wanted people to take away is that this 
abundance of diversity. It's the same type of abundance and diversity that's spreading around the world. So whether it's cotton candy grapes or certain varieties of avocado. So there's a, a degree of uniformity that's spreading. Hmm. That's one idea. But also I in the book, I want to get into the building blocks or the foundations of the food system. And as you're saying that you go in and you'll see this abundance, but actually some of the ingredients behind that abundance of diversity take bread and the wheat that goes into that bread, it's become extremely narrow in terms of its genetics. Hmm. And so I talk about this amazing place in the Arctic called Svalbard, where there's a, a seed vault buried deep under the ice, down a tunnel, in which there are more than 200,000 different unique samples of wheat. A farmer today might typically, and certainly this is the case in the UK, and I'm pretty sure this is the case in most parts of Europe and the US, a farmer might have a recommended list of wheats dictated pretty much by the food industry and millers and bakers of fewer than 10. Hmm. And so that's the kind of diversity that's hidden from us, really, or the lack of diversity that's hidden from us. And you can take all of the world's staple crops, you know, maize and rice, and the same is the case. In seed vaults banks around the world, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of varieties. In the food system, an extremely small number. So there's been a massive shrinking in diversity of, would you say, all kinds of foods? Yeah, yeah. And this is why I give different time frames within the book as well. So I, at one level, I go back more than three and a half billion years to try and explain the, how is it that diversity came into existence and the evolution and the arrival of some of the most important foods, which humans then start to evolve, you know, choose your time frame of two million years or one million years, homo sapiens, 300,000 years, farmers, 10 to 12,000 years. Through that story of our history as a species is diversity, whether as hunter-gatherers and then as farmers. So the first farmers who took wild grasses and domesticated them and they became wheat and barley, they then spread it to different parts of the world in which those plants then adapted and then had huge amounts of variation in the kinds of environmental conditions that they thrived in, but also the cultural kind of adaptations as well, so different colours and, and flavours. In the 20th century, we have been so successful at narrowing that genetic base to find the highest yielding plants, and that most famously was the story of the Green Revolution, and it delivered huge amounts of food and calories and energy globally, it did that by selecting an extremely narrow genetic base for our food. Right, right. So I write a lot about the crisis of biodiversity loss, and I'm just curious, like, do you see this as a sort of similar crisis of food loss? Like, is this the biodiversity crisis, but for food? It's interconnected in so many ways. So I, I think, firstly, uh, and obviously this was something that was aired at COP26, you know, the idea of deforestation. So the idea of this uniformity of crops and monocultures, you know, take oil palm or soy and the amount of biodiversity lost in producing those crops that then feed the livestock that we consume again, and we can get into that, but an extremely narrow genetic base in animal breeds now, fed by an extremely narrow base of these legumes as well as a source of protein. So that's one relationship between endangered foods, uniformity of the modern food system, and biodiversity loss. But there is also the environmental costs of that system as well. So huge amounts of water being used in this post-Green Revolution food system. Huge amounts of chemicals being used, as we know, and huge amounts of fossil fuels being used in the production of synthetic fertilizers as well. Right. And again, think about the impact that that is having globally when it comes to climate and other pressures on ecosystems. Yeah. And I definitely want to get into some of the consequences of how our food system has changed. But before we get there, you're talking now about the narrowing of the genetic range of food products. And in the book, you talk about, I mean, every basically major staple of food, corn, soy, wheat, different kinds of fruits and vegetables, 
And one thing I'm really struck by is that you talk about the vastness of soy or corn and the ubiquity of it. And then you also go to visit some of these extremely rare crops, like the type of soybean in Japan, for example. And that same contrast appears with rare types of pigs, the white pig in England, for example, versus factory farms that you visit where there are tons of chickens, tons of salmon being produced on just a massive scale. And I want to hear from you just what that was like to experience firsthand, that mm. massive difference from rarity to ubiquity. Yeah, I traveled to Okinawa in the middle of the Pacific. So it's now part of Japan, but actually it's quite detached from it. And historically, that's really important in this story because soy arrives from China a couple of thousand years ago on Okinawa. And then, as I mentioned with this story of what happens when these crops spread, it adapts to the conditions, the tropical conditions on Okinawa. And it grows at a certain pace that can beat the insects before they arrive with the rainy season. So Okinawa had not only its particular adapted type of soy, but it also then had its own particular type of tofu. So, the, you know, this ingenious process of taking these legumes and creating this source of protein was so distinctive. So the culture was different, the farming system was different, the crop genetics was different. What we then see is a succession of different waves of external influence. Firstly, from Japan. So Japan then started to exert its own farming system on Okinawa, this island. And then with the Second World War and US occupation, other foods start to be imported, ironically, including American soy. And so this local variety of soy was lost. And as you were saying, I met a farmer who was in his 70s who'd tracked down some of the last remaining samples of this soy and was determined to bring it back. And I describe in the book standing next to what must be one of the smallest soy plots in the world. And he couldn't, he wow. didn't dare eat a single bean because he <laughs> wanted them to be saved and replanted by other farmers on the island. So I think there's a lot of analysis of, of what's happened in the food system in the book. There's a lot of stories that should give us extreme <laughs> anxiety, but it's also a book of optimism because there are these amazing people out there who are rescuing diversity, saving diversity. And I think the world is slowly catching up with them. So like in this incredible story about being in Okinawa, was this like the last garden, like the last garden plot of this type of soybean? Or do we know if it was elsewhere? It had gone. I mean, the soy had disappeared. That particular variety, he'd actually had to track it down in seed banks. Wow. And then recover it. And this is a reoccurring story in the book. One of my favorite stories, I think some of my favorite stories are the most humble ingredients. So there is a type of lentil in the southern part of Germany, which, again, really difficult conditions to survive and farm. Really rocky, high altitude. But in this region of Swabia, the farmers had this secret weapon, which was a type of lentil that they could use and it provided protein. Again, they had this dish where they mixed it with wheat noodles. So culturally important, agriculturally essential in that uh, region for centuries. Canada starts to uh, produce lentils on a mass scale. And at the same time, Germany is having its industrial boom post-war. And so their lentil disappears. A farmer in Swabia spent 20 years tracking down the lost lentil and contacted all of the seed banks around the world, including the USDA, others, and no, no sign of this lentil. He then travelled with a small group of farmers to Russia, to the Vavilov Institute, which was the first seed bank founded in the world. It turns out they did have it, but they'd mislabeled it. They'd given it the wrong name. <laughs> oh, my God. And so online, there's a picture of him and his fellow farmers with their arms raised, you know, saying, we found our lentil, which it sounds like <laughs> the craziest story to most of us. But actually, for him, this lentil represented a way of life, a farming system and their culture. And he's pulled it off. Hundreds of farmers now in that region are growing that lentil. And it's delicious. I've, I've tried that lentil and I've tried many other lentils in my life. It's special. It tastes so different. 
That's incredible. I love just the, <laughs> the story of rescuing a lost lentil. It's amazing. And and I also just wanted to mention when you were talking about soy. So I'm from Iowa in the US and my house is not far at all from massive fields of corn and soy. And it's just to hear you talk about the rarity of type of soy next to what I grew up next to. I mean, I didn't even know that was a thing. And also to be reminded of the food culture, you know, part of the domestication of soy and the type of uses of soy that they created. I mean, again, just to watch tofu being made is a thing of wonder. Hmm, How on earth do you create this milk (laughs) from a bean that then becomes solid? And in a sense, that idea of taking soy as a valuable source of protein and feeding it directly to humans is something that we need to remember because what we are now doing is growing it on scales never seen before in human history to feed it to pigs, to chickens, etc. Right. So you talk about some of the cultural losses that are associated with some of these foods going extinct, and you've answered this question in parts already, but in broad strokes, like, why should we care? What do we actually have to lose with the shrinking genetic diversity of our foods? I could have written a book which was just full of wonder and lovely photos, and it would have been a great coffee table book of describing some of these obscure foods that we'll never get to eat. But I wanted to make the case because I, I knew from meeting many of these farmers that they were convinced that these foods just didn't belong to the past. They were part of our future. So if I can answer your question with a few more examples. So one is these endangered foods give us options. We know we face many challenges in terms of feeding the world in the future. A potential population of 10 billion by 2050. We know we need to reduce emissions. We know fresh water is a problem in terms of many parts of the world becoming drier. So take the story of a type of maize tucked away in this mountain village in Oaxaca in southern Mexico, very close to where maize was first domesticated thousands of years ago, so perhaps 7,000 BC, around then. Tucked away in this mountain village, home to the Mike people. Botanists had arrived there in the late 1970s and had seen this 16-foot-tall maize. Shouldn't have been growing there, really, because the soil was so poor and they weren't even using the so-called milpa system where they were intercropping it with legumes and other vegetables as well. So already there was a question that they had of, what's this maize doing there? And you said it was 16 feet 16 tall. 16 feet is the most bizarre looking maze that I've ever seen. So not only is it so tall, it has these aerial roots that are dripping a mucus. And when botanists arrived in the late 70s, they were trying to understand what was oozing from this plant and they couldn't figure it out. It was only three years ago that a scientist called Alan Bennett from UC Davis had the technology to analyze what was going on in this dripping mucus. What? <laughs> Turns out that it's an interplay between sugars and microbes, bacteria, in the mucus that actually is feeding the plant from the air. So it's almost nitrogen-fixing aerial roots in a maze, and that hadn't really been seen before in cereal crops. So there are literally roots coming out of like the top of this 16-foot stock of corn? Yeah, so we're used to thinking of roots below ground. These are above ground, as well as having the the roots below ground. And you know, people can go online and, and look at this. It looks like a you know something from a science fiction film. <laughs> it sounds like it. So why should we care? Well, in the, all of the villages around this particular village, fertilizers had arrived. So they, they were in a position where they could replace the old types of maize and start to use new varieties, high-yielding ones. The scientist who actually solved the problem of what was going on said that we got there just in time to find these plants, to analyze them. And he's convinced that actually, could this have a future application in which we can reduce fertilizer usage globally if we understand how this plant works? And so we need to give thanks to the indigenous people who have looked after this maize for centuries, if not thousands of years. So that's one reason. And and then I was also struck by just, you talked a lot about resistance to potential diseases. I mean, how big of a threat is disease when we talk about food security? And what value does kind of wild genetic varieties hold? That's another really important reason that I I really dived into when I was writing the book. And so I traveled to um, eastern Turkey. I wanted to get as close as I could to the Fertile Crescent, where 
wheat was first domesticated. And when the first farmers did domesticate these wild grasses, they, through a process of selection, had two main types, emma and einkorn. Lower yielding compared to today's modern bread wheats. They have a husk, which means they're quite difficult to mill. I travelled to a village where I found farmers had saved a type of emma. So this is a type of wheat that generation after generation had been growing for close to eight, 9,000 years in that part of the world. Mm. The reason why it's so important is because, again, they are farming in conditions where it's quite high altitude, where it's quite damp. If you put a modern wheat in that environment, fungal diseases would mean that there would be no crop. And so what they have there is this precious genetic resource, again, that has forms of resistance. Take that wheat and then those principles of disease resistance. And you will find, again, in rice, in seed banks, in maize, in all of the crops, this adaptation that our ancestors, your ancestors, my ancestors, over thousands of years through farming, created this diversity under different conditions. And what we've done is we've created these incredibly high-performance plants but they need specific conditions and they need all of those inputs. So we need, again, it's options for the future by having this diversity that farmers globally have created. So basically, if you have like hundreds of thousands or millions of varieties of different foods, and these are adapted to all kinds of conditions all around the world, chances are there's going to be something that's resistant to a certain disease or other kind of pathogen or tolerates drought conditions or whatever. There's just more variety to choose from. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what I would say is traits that will give greater resistance. So I wouldn't argue that some of these plants can't be impacted. But the other thing we've done is, you know, take a field of wheat or maize. Each plant is almost a clone. Whereas in traditional farming systems, the huge genetic diversity within the field, what we call land race crops. And so in that field, if you get a bad summer or too much rain, too little rain, some of those plants are going to deliver because there is diversity within the crop, yeah. within the field. So I, I guess I'm just curious, like, why can't we just engineer our way out of this problem? Like, if we find that a plant is not drought tolerant or mm. dying because of a pathogen, why not just use genetically modified food or, or something like that? I mean, I think, again, this work is underway right now, as you know, a lot of um, research and people are, you know, trying to figure out where CRISPR might take us in terms of gene editing. However, what I'm arguing is the value of diversity. And there is huge amounts of investment happening right now. Here, for example, in the UK, there are labs, crop breeders who are using the wild relatives of wheat to try and bring diversity back, to try and bring disease resistance back into these highly productive wheats that unfortunately now are becoming increasingly susceptible to disease. Mm. The problem with that approach is, well, if you find the trait and then you create a new type of wheat, there's a risk you're just going to create another monoculture, another uniform crop. Whereas actually what we should be doing is valuing diversity itself. And I'm not arguing against this science or technology, and I'm not saying it shouldn't sit alongside these other systems, but I think we need to save these diverse foods and genetics to give us options. Dan has been all over the world. He's reported on the negative effects of monocultures and the loss of diversity in tons of different environments. But when it comes to our food supply, biodiversity also means a diversity of different tastes. After a short break, I'll ask Dan Saladino, are we facing a mass flavor extinction? I really wanted to talk about flavor, too. You had many interesting examples of this in terms of how flavor might be changing over time. And when we lose diversity, we might also be losing flavor. Is there like a flavor extinction happening as well, in your opinion? 
Absolutely. So I tell the story of a type of citrus from northern India, a region called Meghalaya, one of the world's great biodiversity hotspots. This is Mamang Narang? Yes, which has cultural importance, spiritual as well. So it's a type of wild citrus that's placed by deceased people as part of a ritual, a wild type of citrus. And it has a cultural, a culinary, a medicinal function. But the striking thing is how bitter these um, fruits are. And the person who was in the region trying to save this citrus told me that there is huge value placed on bitterness, but it's a flavor that's disappearing from most of our palates, in a sense, that as most of the world has become sweeter, this culture in northern India is one of the rare places where they really prize bitterness. So basically, this type of citrus is super bitter, and that's very different than some of the clementines or oranges you buy in the grocery store today, which are very sweet. And are you saying that over time, we've kind of engineered sweeter and sweeter fruits that do not have that bitter flavor? Absolutely. So if you think that that bitterness actually contains compounds that is the plant's defense mechanism, and there's a connection there, you know, in terms of why it might be beneficial for us to be experiencing bitterness in our diets. The fruit breeders over centuries have been extremely ingenious at giving us something that we love, which is sweetness. And so they have bred out the bitterness. Mm. And also what we've done is we've created farming systems in which we nurture and care for these plants using chemicals. So we've taken the beneficial bitter compounds out and we've cloaked them in pesticides and other chemicals to protect them, to give them human-made protection. This is such an amazing story thinking about. So these types of citrus are naturally defended against insect pests and that defense is translated to bitterness and flavor. And so if you lose the bitterness and foods become more sweet, you then need more pesticides because the pests are also really eager and able to get into the fruits. Yeah. And that was explained to me by somebody who works at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew. So one of our leading, and it's a centuries-old institution where they are traveling around the world, finding lost, forgotten, or endangered foods. And the person who was telling me that story was somebody who specializes in medicinal plants and was explaining why citrus in that part of the world is so important and has been for many, many centuries in terms of this citrus being used as a medicine. But can I give another example of yes, please, please. lost flavors in a way? And, and I think if I can just talk about coffee, and obviously, famously, Arabica has you know, a huge lot of diversity in it globally. So you know, we now live in a world in which we can enjoy lots of different types of Arabica coffee. And there's Robusta as well. Arabica being the coffee that you get most commonly in a New York coffee shop versus Robusta, which is often used in instant coffee, right? Absolutely, yeah. However, Robusta and Arabica are just two of more than a hundred different types of coffee that botanists have identified around the world. Now, some of these you will not want to drink because they are so awful. And there, there is a botanist, a coffee expert in the UK who has done this. He's traveled the world <laughs> sampling some of these different types of coffee. Very caffeinated. <laughs> well, And actually, some of them have very little caffeine as well. Oh. But the really fascinating thing is that historically, as well as Arabica and Robusta, and Robusta, I don't want to get too coffee geeky here, but, you know, Robusta was one of the more recent arrivals. But alongside Arabica, there were cultures in parts of Africa where they had other more distinctive types of coffee. And one of them is called Stenophila. Now, Stenophila was a prized coffee up until the 1960s in parts of East Africa. And it then went pretty much extinct because farming systems changed and process of urbanization and other crops were planted. About 10 years ago, this coffee expert, Aaron Davis from Kew, traveled at the invitation of government to try and track down if there were any surviving stenophylla trees. Found one, but it's like finding just one rare panda. You needed, in the case of this particular type of coffee, two to fertilize the plants to produce coffee. And he was trekking through mountains, hacking through dense forest and found a second one. And for the (laughs) first time, 
in almost 50 years, a cup of Stenophylla was tasted. And wow. it has greater disease resistance than Arabica. And Arabica is actually under pressure now because of climate change. It's an extremely delicate plant. Stenophylla is a delicious tasting coffee that went extinct that could be brought back. And so you get two benefits there, disease resistance and this amazing tasting coffee. Does it make you sad to think about the loss of these kinds of flavors? Like that makes me sad. Like I love getting to try, I don't know, new varieties and flavors and hearing how amazing they are. Like what is your emotional reaction? In writing the book, huge sadness at the fact that this process is still continuing mm. and it will no doubt continue in, in many forms for a very long time to come of you know, many complex reasons behind that. But I think that this homogenization of food and farming will continue. And it's a tragedy for the planet. It's a tragedy for our health. Culturally, it's an awful thing to see these skills and knowledge and wisdom disappearing with each generation. Yeah. One of the other examples related to flavor that I just, I, I really loved was are they called sailors' cows? These cows in central France? Yeah, sailors, which is Salers, a place. Yeah. yeah. You, you write about how they make a cheese with the cow milk, right? Yeah. And one of my favorite stories because sailors is it's a place, it's a breed of cow, and it's a cheese. And it's one <laughs> of the it's one of these cheeses that is the product of transhumans. So the idea that from a village, farmers would take their cattle in the spring and in the summer to places where the pasture was richest. And so they would end up in these remote places, living in barns quite close to the cattle, milking them twice a day. And it was like a monastic experience, really. They were up there living this solitary life and incredibly hard physical work to make this cheese as well, which would then at the end of the summer end up back down in the village. So this mind-blowing process of the pasture capturing the energy of the sun and the animals being able to convert the pasture into milk and then cheese and for the energy to be stored as a food down in the village for the winter when other foods were running out. This mind-blowing idea of the power of cheese. But the remarkable thing is that so rich is the pasture, so microbially rich is the milk, that the farmers don't need a starter culture to coagulate the milk and turn it into cheese. It's so microbially rich. And it, it's, <laughs> it basically also lives in the wooden barrels that they make the cheese in. So as soon as the milk hits these wooden barrels, they're inoculated with microbes that then start the process. From modern health inspector, it would be a nightmare watching this. You know, they would have a panic attack. But again, <laughs> we've been talking about endangered genetics of crops. We've been talking about endangered flavors and tastes. Here we're talking about endangered bacteria, endangered microbes that are now missing, not only from hmm. cheese making, the cheese making process, but also, interestingly for me, our gut microbiomes as well. So yeah. emerging science in which these microbes in our guts, we now know are important to our health, physical and mental, and they really thrive on diversity as well. God, food just connects literally everything. I mean, the cow example is just such a good one to encapsulate all of the value and, and what we have to lose, because you're talking about the culture of these people who live alongside them, and then you're talking about the biodiversity of the pasture. What I found particularly striking was hearing that when the cows have access to a, a wider diversity of grasses, and those grasses have their own defense systems against insects, which translate as flavor as well, you get this incredibly rich milk, which produces incredibly rich cheese with flavors that literally you probably can't find in other places or certainly in other cheeses. I mean, that to me is just a direct translation of biodiversity to richness and flavor, which is amazing. Absolutely. And I think there are people who've written entire books on this subject and, and talk about these compounds called terpenes, which can be found in this milk from rich pasture, but can't be found in cheese that's made with milk from cattle that have been fed on silage, for example, or, or our grains, for example. So again, this these connections that we are now only beginning to understand between biodiversity and our food and our health and our flavors and our experiences, 
And why is it that some cultures valued them and prized them because of their flavors and because of what they saw as the benefits of eating this food as well? I mean, it's like literally everything has terroir. And when we talked in the beginning about what the grocery store looks like, I mean, this homogenization, we're losing the terroir because everything is now coming from like five companies or whatever it is. And that to me is is sad. Yeah. Well, again, going back to that idea of the building blocks or the foundations of the food system, and one of those clearly is seeds. And seeds after the Second World War, particularly because of that story that we've been discussing you know, about the use of chemical inputs following the Green Revolution, no surprise, perhaps, that it was chemical companies that then stepped in and started to buy up lots of small family seed companies mm. because they produced the chemicals that were required by this new farming system and the seeds. So now we have more than 50% of the global production and trade in seeds in the hands of just four corporations. The same consolidation also exists in livestock. So there are three globally important breeds of chicken, for example, in the hands of just two corporations. That's so wild. (laughs) Just before we leave the topic of flavor, I've got to know like what it was like to try some of these different foods and what that was like to experience. One of them that comes to mind is, I'm going to totally butcher the name, so to speak, Shershpadot in uh, the Faroe Very Islands. Very close. Yeah, I, I, it's taken me years to actually be able to say this, but Shershpadot. Shershpadot, okay. And w- um, so what is that and, and, <laughs> and what was that like to taste? Well, this is a food from the Faroe Islands. So if I uh, traveled north from where I am in the UK and I then hit Scotland and then I go further, I would arrive at a remote island to the um, southwest of Iceland. And people settled here, uh, extremely brave people because it's so harsh and remote, now treeless pretty much. And there isn't enough sunlight or firewood to produce salt to preserve food. I say in the book that it's almost as if the island gave them an option, which was they built these huts called, it's pronounced chatla, and these huts have gaps in them, which allows in the sea air. It's a sheep growing island, and they would hang some of their sheep in these huts. It would be bathed by the the salt air coming in, and slowly it would preserve and ferment. So it's almost as if this this sheep meat is gently rotting away in these huts. But actually just the conditions are just exactly right in terms of temperature and the amount of salt and wind. So they don't rot and become too funky and become waste. They actually preserve it. And so it becomes this wonderful preserved meat that if you were to look at it, it wouldn't look like food. (laughs) It's covered in mold it needs to be washed oh, wow. before you start oh eating God. it. But it's actually, again, beneficial microbes are in balance and yeah. actually slowly, slowly preserving this sheep meat, which in those conditions, if you didn't have that food, you would starve. And did you try it? I did. I did. And I thought it was delicious. So, so I think if you know to have a wonderful cured ham from France or Italy, perhaps, I would argue this stands on its own, really. Maybe it's all about context as well, of being there and standing in the wooden hut with a guy who slaughtered the animal and preserved the meat. Some people have visited and said it for them it tastes somewhere between Parmigiano cheese and death. So <laughs> that's how some people have described it. But I, a very delicate sliver. You didn't get the death taste. <laughs> I didn't get the death taste. But it's this reverence for the process, the reverence yeah. for the animals. And that's what I'm trying to also trying to get across in that section of the book dealing with meat that actually the value and the effort that went in to eating that type of animal protein and just such a good example of how this really could only exist in this one spot like it's so specific to the environment like the sea spray preserving it is just incredible Mm, absolutely um and then the other example that i wanted to talk about when I was reading this section of the book, I was I had chills because it just sounded so incredible. But you went to the country, Georgia, to have wine that this wine grower was had been making. And it just sounded like an amazing experience. And I want you to share that with everyone. Like, what was special about that wine? Why did you visit him? To try and understand the value of diversity, I wanted to try and myself understand the origin stories. 
And it's believed because of the genetic diversity that exists there and also because of historical records that Georgia is the most likely candidate for a country in which grapes were domesticated and the first winemakers were practicing their craft. And the wonderful thing is that they have a technology that predates the barrel by thousands of years, which is called quevery. And these are terracotta vessels that are buried underground and you put in the whole branches of grapes with skins and pips. And this process of, again, fermentation gets underway. And the winemakers I was visiting were natural winemakers. So nothing else went into that terracotta vessel apart from the grapes. And they fermented the juice. And I wanted to also understand how do drinks and wine fit into this story, this narrative of uniformity. And actually, it turned out to be one of the most powerful stories that, again, post-war, production systems came in, high-yielding grape varieties. Not only that, but also there were wine critics who were saying this is what a wine should taste like. And this uniformity Mm. spreads around the the wine-growing world and huge amounts of diversity was lost. Georgia, they have more than 500 different grape varieties. Many of them were lost in the communist era, but hidden away, tucked away in villages, many of them have survived. And so there's been a renaissance since the fall of the Soviet Union and the end of communism and Georgia eventually becoming a, an independent nation again, recovering its own sense of history and its food and drink. And what I didn't realize also, and many people think of France again and Italy and Spain and California being great wine-producing regions. And here was a place where the relationship with wine just went up to another level. And again, (laughs) it was almost like this reverence and spiritual dimension to wine drinking, but not only that, of people gathering together to drink wine together and to sing and to eat and to dance and to celebrate. Mm. And it's a beautiful country, wonderful culture, and some extremely fascinating, diverse wines for people to experiment with. You can taste these wines. Are you a, a big wine drinker? I I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I love what I follow now is the story and the values of the winemaker. And I met some great characters there that, that have helped me sift through the oceans of wine that we <laughs> we now have a huge amount of choice. So I think yeah. the story for me was so powerful that that's the story I want to be drinking. Did you taste the earthiness of it? I mean, given that they have twigs and so forth in it, like, did it taste different than other wines well, you've had? The ingenious thing about this vessel is that the shape of it, designed over thousands of years, means that all of the unwanted material from the grapes sinks to the bottom and you get this wonderfully pure, clear liquid at the top, which is what they then extract. And so I think highly skilled winemakers using that technology, uh, and these people that I met whose fathers and great-grandfathers and great-grandfathers were were making wine, there are also amazing women winemakers now in Georgia as well. Mm. And again, I tasted diversity. There were unexpected flavors in there. But I think this idea of what a food should taste like, because that's what we have been trained or taught to expect, that needs to be also challenged, I think. As Dan explains, our relationship with food also reflects our broader relationship with nature. Though he witnesses super local customs, the lessons they can teach us are big. Take this one tradition involving a small bird, a human hunter, and a hive of honey-making bees. It's truly incredible, and we'll hear all about that after one last quick break. wanted to chat about a theme that also came up in your book, which is just like our broader relationship with nature. And so I think beyond losing the diversity of crops, beyond the risk of losing resiliency when it comes to to disease and climate change and so forth, beyond just flavor, we're also changing in dramatic ways our relationship with nature. And I think like we see ourselves as something separate, whereas a lot of cultures that you talk about And these groups that live among certain foods are very much a part of the ecosystem. And the example that comes to mind is the Hadza honey. And I just 
You open with this. It's so powerful and visual. Can you just describe what the honey culture looks like there? Mm, I think that's a story that really does brilliantly sum up what you've just been describing, that immersion of a tiny number of humans now in, in nature and a part of nature. Because in that case, I followed some of the um, hunter-gatherers out among this landscape of baobab trees, these huge trees, some of them a thousand years old, and in those trees are bees' nests. And one of the greatest prizes the hunter-gatherers could find, which is honey, an important source not just of carbohydrate and energy, but also protein because it's full of larvae and, and other things as well. And an extremely important food. In fact, it's their favorite food. But the challenge of finding these bees' nests high up in these baobab trees is, is a big one. And so we don't know exactly how this happened, but it could date back to the origins of humans using fire. So, you know, 700,000 years ago, perhaps, they whistle. And after a period of time, if they're lucky, a bird, a very humble-looking bird will fly down and we'll start a conversation with the hunter-gatherer and lead them to a tree where there is honey. The bird knows where the honey is. The hunter-gatherers have the fire and the smoke to get rid of the dangerous bees, stinging bees, a big risk for the bird. It means that the hunter-gatherer can then go up, extract the honey, and leave something behind for the birds. This interplay, this conversation between a human and a bird, and this relationship between the trees, the landscape, this interspecies conversation, that was a very important moment for me in, in writing the book because also this was the part of the world where we know Homo sapiens evolved. And actually, wow. you know, it's such an important part in our evolutionary history. And to think that that conversation between human and bird is part of that. So this is in Tanzania. There's this group of people called the Hadza and they essentially have a relationship with this bird that guides them to honey. They calm the bees down and take the honey out, and then the bird gets some as, like, leftover from what they take. So it's literally like teamwork between Hatsa people and a bird. Yeah, it's considered to be the most complex and productive relationship between humans and another species. Yeah, and, and there are only just over a 1,000 Hatsa, but only 200 who are practicing no form of agriculture. So, and they are thoroughly modern humans and they are opting to live this life, but just a very small number of them and, and huge pressures, external pressures bearing down on their way of life. There was this such a sad experience I had towards the end of the visit where we went to a mud brick kind of hut just on the periphery of where the Hadza were hunting and gathering and inside there were cans and cans of soda. How they'd got there, I don't know. It was almost like the last leg of a supply chain that was extremely, as we know, powerful and global. But it had reached the Hadza, and it was sad because this was a source of sugar and energy that could mean that they no longer use that skill. And within our lifetimes, something so fundamentally important to human history could go in our yeah. lifetimes. Yeah, the question of the soda, I mean... One question I had while reading that part of the book, do we run a risk of glorifying some of these older types of cultures and relationships? Like, are there cases where actually there's a lot of benefits that these people get from access to kind of more globalized commodities or something like healthcare, for example? Like, is this a situation where we need to have both the old and the new, I guess? Like, how do you mm. integrate those two things? Yeah, and it's an extremely sensitive area. And you're absolutely right to ask that question. And my response is, I think they should be given the choice. But I think that first section of the book, which is all about wild food and indigenous food cultures, it's story after story of another culture coming in and imposing its food and its farming systems and its values and its desires on these indigenous food systems. And my argument is that they should be given, obviously, the choice and they should have access to healthcare. But that doesn't necessarily mean that their way of life should be fundamentally changed because they're buying into our system. I don't think the Hadza requested a mud brick hut to be built where there are cans of soda drinks there, you know. But also, it's, you know, what's happening climatically in that part of Africa, it means that there are other tribes who are now 
short of water who are having to move their livestock towards the Hadza and water sources. There's pressure from all sides. And, and people have, over the last century, tried to remove them from their hunter-gatherer, by force, remove them from their hunter-gatherer lifestyles. But now they are, even though they have more protected land, they are now experiencing this encroachment from people who are wanting to farm and also to bring cattle into an extremely, what was an extremely wild part of Tanzania. Hmm. I think having talked about the Hadza seems like a good place to get to some of maybe what gave you hope during this long reporting process. I mean, we've talked about a lot of sad things, but did you walk away with some hope for the future of our food system, of our relationship with nature? I mean, you hinted at this in the beginning, but yeah, what inspired you? Well, I end the book by describing this meeting or this coming together of many of the people, many of the people, the types of people in the book. So people who are out there saving this diversity of foods often are net part of a network. And that network, before COVID certainly, gathered in um, the former Fiat factory in Turin for the slow food event called Terra Madre. And to actually just watch people bringing their foods from around the world to display and, and share the story of what they've achieved and what they've saved or what they're being threatened by. And then to have this solidarity, I think is that gives me a lot of optimism that actually threading around the world now connected are people trying to do something for all of our benefit, I would argue. But there are lots of stories of optimism in the book. So, for example, in southwestern China, I met a farmer saving, you know, an extremely rare type of highly nutritious red-coloured rice, standing there in the middle of nowhere, and he got out his phone. And on, on the phone was an app called WeChat, and he was selling his rice to people in Beijing and Chengdu, some of the biggest cities <laughs> in the world. And so wow. I think you know, modern technology can actually connect us and, and be helpful. And as we know, you know, the conversations now between consumers and farmers is extremely vibrant. So we can all play a part in helping to save diversity. So I think, yeah, science, technology, bring it on if it can help us save diversity. And just a, a fun fact there, wasn't the original rice red? It was, yes. That's so wild. <laughs> so again, through selection, we we made it, you know, it became whiter and whiter, but actually there's a lot of value nutritionally in those older, more wild types of rice, which is why some of the leading rice experts in the US are producing new varieties using these genetics of wilder red Asian rice types. Mm. Wow, that's amazing. So, so, I mean, you mentioned like our relationships with farmers and how technology is connecting people. But yes, more on that, like the food industry is just so massive. You mentioned how few companies kind of dominate all these different supply chains. I mean, how does someone like me, someone like any listener that just cooks for themselves, eats out, goes to the grocery store, like how do we actually do something to help prevent some of these foods from going extinct? We can do a lot, but we can't do everything. So I don't think we should be beating ourselves up saying that, you know, I'm part of the problem and I am I need to be out there saving diversity. It's difficult because of the food system that we all are operating, most of us are operating in. Firstly, I think it's important to know the story. And that's why I wanted to write the book was to actually explain what do we mean by endangered foods and diversity. And I think even just understanding that level of diversity is out there is a really powerful thing. I think we should all choose our favorite foods and interrogate the diversity of that food, whether it is a type of chocolate or coffee or different types of cheeses, and then use that to maybe develop a relationship with a cheesemaker as a different kind of customer, somebody who's supporting a local cheesemaker. However, I think some of this needs to be dealt with at a much larger scale. So I, I was also inspired by stories of in cities such as Copenhagen in, in uh, Europe, using public procurement to get food into schools, using diversity as a criteria for the contracts they're issuing to farmers to say, don't just give me the cheapest apples, give me a choice of apples and we will reward you. And that's happening. In Brazil, over the last few decades, they've had a policy of having a commitment of sourcing 30% of ingredients in many schools from local family farms. So again, that some of these big shifts are too big for us to change individually, but cities and governments can. They need to change. And these levers do exist for governments to make a big, significant change. And also, I think we have the most selfish reasons 
to embrace diversity now, which is our own health. And we know what's happening in, in many parts of the world in terms of type 2 diabetes and cancers and other things that we know have a, a food dimension to these illnesses, you know, these diseases proliferating around the world. And so I'm fascinated by projects that are, I think, being led by American uh, scientists. So it's looking at the dark matter of food that we only understand a few a small percentage of the compounds in any food, we are starting to unravel the complexity of foods. So perhaps we will be motivated by health and food businesses will be motivated by our health to try and bring diversity back into the food system because the science says it needs to. That seems like as good a place as any to leave this conversation. Thank you so much for chatting with me. This was so interesting. Thank you, Benji. It's been a great conversation. And I I went into this hungry and I'm totally starving. So thanks for that. (laughs) Me too. Me too. Yeah. I only wish I could have some shush budget. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. Fox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this piece. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you've got ideas for future guests, guest hosts, or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please subscribe, rate, and review. We're off on Monday for President's Day, but join us next Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.